We are up to mitzvah number 25, and that's the mitzvah, which is the first of the Ten Commandments. So the next uh, 11 or 12 upcoming mitzvahs are going to be part of the Ten Commandments. It's called the Ten Commandments, even though there's more than Ten Commandments in it, which is interesting. And this, of course, appears in chapter 20 of Exodus, the most significant event in the Torah, the most significant event in all of human history, Revelation at Sinai, an entire nation at the foot of the mountain experiences prophecy together. Millions of people are hearing God talk to them and conveying these Ten Commandments. And the first one, of course, is, I'm the Lord your God. And the way it is interpreted here by the Rambam and by the Sefer Chinuch is that this is a mitzvah to believe in the existence of of God. Now, obviously, this is a very important mitzvah. It's a very central mitzvah. Because if you don't have this one, well, you don't have any of the other ones. Without God, of course, there's no Torah. Without God, there can't be any commandments which are divinely originated. In fact, in the Rambam's delineation of mitzvos, in his book called Sefer HaMitzvos, the book of mitzvos, he organizes them by order of importance. The very first of 613 mitzvahs that the Rambam lists is to have faith, is to believe in God. Because if you don't have that, of course, you don't have anything else. The Talmud in the book of Makos on page 24a tells us a very interesting practice that was maintained over many successive generations wherein the sages and the leaders of each successive generation would distill all 613 mitzvos into bundles of progressively smaller lists of mitzvos. So, for example, it says that when uh, King David arrived, he tried to pare 613 mitzvos down to 11 core principles. And then comes along Isaiah, and he shortens it further. And comes along Micah, and he shortens it further. And the last of the prophets to engage in this practice is the prophet Habakkuk. And he distills all of Torah into only one principle. And that is the famous verse in Habakkuk, V'tzadik be'emunaso yechia. And a righteous lives with emuna, with faith. Meaning that all mitzvos really are 613 different aspects of faith. And therefore, the one mitzvah of faith, the first of the Ten Commandments, the mitzvah number 25, that is actually pervasive. That's its influence really affects every mitzvah in the Torah. Every mitzvah is an expression of faith, and a fulfillment of every mitzvah is a fulfillment of faith. Interestingly, some of the other sages that make a list of the 613 mitzvahs, like we said last time, the Talmud tells us that there's 613 principles, mitzvahs in the Torah. It doesn't break it down with a list of what are the 613, what are the 248 positive, what are the 365 negative. It doesn't do that. And therefore, uh, the, the later sages, they took upon themselves the task of figuring out what are the principles of what is considered a mitzvah versus what is a subcategory of another mitzvah or what is just a general principle but it's not a mitzvah. And listing all 613. So like we said, the Rambam, he does 14 principles, 14 roots, as he calls it, of how to define, how to classify what is a mitzvah, what is not a mitzvah. And therefore, using those rules, he makes his list 
of 613. There are others who disagree with the Rambam in his assigning one slot of the 613 to this mitzvah, to the mitzvah of faith to believe in God. Why? This is something that has to come before mitzvahs. It can't be one of the mitzvahs is to believe in God because if you don't believe in God, then you can have the mitzvah. And if you do believe in God, then you don't need the mitzvah. It's one of those kind of circular logical things that it's not possible for you to say, oh, God told me to believe in the mitzvah because if God told you, then you already believe in God. And therefore they say, no, that's something that comes even before the 613 and it's not one of the 613. The Ramam evidently disagrees. But as we'll see in our surveying of this mitzvah, that it's more than just acknowledgement of a principle, it's integration of a principle. And therefore, it's possible for someone to, yeah, believe in God and still have room to partake in this mitzvah because you believe, but there's something a little bit deeper in trying to ingrain this principle into your ideology and worldview, and therefore, there's room for you to grow here as well in this mitzvah. So what is the definition of belief in God, faith in God, according to these sages. So number one, he says, to believe that the world has one deity, one creator, who created everything, and from his power and his desire, everything that exists is given life and vitality to. He was, he is, and will be outside of time and space, and again, is not dependent upon anything else, and everything else is dependent upon him. This is, again, the Rambam's definition. The very beginning of the Yad HaZaka, he defines God as the force that created everything and the force upon which everything relies upon for its vitality. Is independent and everything else is dependent upon it. Number one. Number two, all-powerful and overseer of humanity. Meaning, the verse continues, I am the Lord your God who took you out of the land of Egypt. That's part of the Jewish definition of God. Not only all-powerful, omnipotent, omniscient, it's more than that. It's also involved in the happenings of humanity. Therefore, the definition of the Jewish God is the Jewish God who took you out of the land of Egypt which means was aware of your suffering, was invested in making your life better, and did this miracle of taking you out of the land of Egypt. Meaning that the Jewish definition of God is creator, sustainer, but also supervisor. So what this means is that you have to know and believe that the world has a creator, and the creator took us out of the land of Egypt. Don't think that it happened by chance. Rather, you should know, Anochi, I am the one, so to speak, that the Almighty is saying, who took you out with desire, with oversight, with providence, like he promised to Abraham, to Isaac, and Jacob. And the Sefer Chenech continues that really this is something which is self-explanatory. Uh, the, the reason why we need to have this mitzvah, no one says, hey, why do we need to have this mitzvah? It's, it's obvious because this is the foundation of religion. And if someone rejects this principle, then they reject everything and they have no portion in Torah or in the nation of Israel. Very harsh language he uses that this is so, so central, so critical that this is the one thing that kind of makes or breaks someone's 
identifying with the core principles of Judaism. And here he goes on to explain how do you engage in this activity? How do you fulfill this mitzvah? You know, every other mitzvah, you need to put a mezuzah on your doorpost. You put a mezuzah on, you fulfill the mitzvah. You study Torah, you study Torah, and you're done, right? Or question is what the minimum is. Maybe you have to study all day. But the point is it's, it's an activity that you do here. This is more like a belief that you have. So how do you actually do the mitzvah? How do you fulfill it? What do you do? So he explains that the way you fulfill this mitzvah is you reinforce and you re-entrench in your heart that the truth is thus and anything that is in opposition to this is infeasible in any way. So there is a certain active way of fulfilling this mitzvah. It's not just, oh, I've had that belief since I was a kid and therefore I've been fulfilling the mitzvah ever since then. The way to fulfill the mitzvah, says the Sefer Chinuch, is to reinforce this, is to undertake the mental or emotional or spiritual process through which you are making this idea true and you're negating any other possibility. In addition, he says, part of this mitzvah is also to not be embarrassed to admit it. If someone, for example, asks you the question, do you believe this or not? Even if your life is on the line, the mitzvah mandates that you uphold this principle even if it puts you into mortal danger. You should verbalize with your mouth what your heart believes. Do not have this remain solely in your heart, but be willing to admit it publicly. My grandfather of blessed memory, he used to say frequently that the real measure of someone's faith is if they're stranded, let's say, on an island. And they're there for a night. They were shipwrecked. And they get to the morning, and it's time for breakfast. And the indigenous people on the island, uh, they give them food. And he asks them, well, is, is it kosher? And they start laughing at him. Everyone, the whole nation, the whole people, everyone starts laughing at him and, and deriding him. What? You still believe in those things? It's kosher? What do you? And everyone's laughing at him. He's a laughing stock. And then he makes a blessing and they mock him. And then he wants to pray and they mock him further. Like, that's a lot of social pressure. Real resolute faith is if someone is able to withstand 10 years of such treatment and not to budge an inch. That's the measure of true, uh, of full faith. Of course, that's a lot to ask for. It's easy to say you believe when you're surrounded in like-minded company. But here we're told that it's not just about what you say and what you believe and what you're willing to express when there are friendly, like-minded people around you, but also in a hostile environment, not being willing to forfeit what you believe to acclimate to the society around you. And he goes through some of the various applications of this mitzvah. Uh, for example, he tells us that the Talmud tells us that there's certain parts of this idea, meaning the existence of God, that are beyond human intellect. It's not possible for a human to understand God fully. In fact, there is a name of God, which we call the ineffable name of God, because you cannot pronounce it, you cannot enunciate it. 
and that is the name that refers to God's essence. And the reason why you're not allowed to pronounce it is because it refers to an idea that you are hardwired to not understand. It's not possible for a human to understand how anything can exist simultaneously in the past, in the present, and in the future. It's beyond, we can't fathom that because it's, there, there's certain rigid rules of reality that are baked into our worldview that make it impossible for us to fathom something like that. Yet, the very name of God, the name that we don't pronounce, is a description of the Almighty's omnipotence. And therefore, part of this law is a certain acknowledgement that there's some things about the theological reality of God that are beyond us and we cannot possibly fathom it. And therefore, it's actually prohibited to think about it. Because if you think about it, it's not likely to bring you closer to faith. It's more likely to push you away to, from faith. Because if you're trying to understand God in your terms, and God is way beyond anything that you could possibly fathom, well then, if it has to fit into your worldview, and it cannot fit into your worldview because that's way, way, way too narrow and small, well then, trying to do that will likely push you away from faith uh, versus bringing you closer to faith. He also tells us, the Sefer Chinuch does here, about the fact that God does not have a body, which is one of the Maimonides' 13 principles of faith. In fact, the first five principles of faith that Maimonides delineates are related to our understanding, our perception of the divine. And one of them is that he has no goof and he has no shortcomings, which is why humans only understand things that have certain limitations. The idea of infinity we cannot understand. And therefore, there's certain parts, like he says, that we cannot understand about, about God. And this mitzvah, he concludes, applies in all times and in all places for males and females. And if you don't have this mitzvah, you don't have any portal into entrance into the Jewish nation or the Jewish religion. I want to conclude the study of this important mitzvah with an idea that I heard from my grandfather, I think it's a very, very useful idea. You know, there is a question of how we could approach this subject. I think there's two separate ways to approach the subject. You could approach it with complexity, and you could approach it with simplicity. Complexity would be by studying the great works of philosophy, uh, studying Einstein or reading what Stephen Hawking has to say on the matter, or what, for that matter, Isaac Newton, who was a very deep believer, had to say on the issue. You could read, uh, study cosmology, astronomy, physics, you research the laws of thermodynamics, you read Kant. There's a lot of complex ways to try to approach the subject of theology. My grandfather advised that that's not the right way to approach it. He doesn't explain why, but my theory is because the idea of God is a infinitely complex but also infinitely simple subject. It's complex because there's these ideas that are, are very fascinating and very vast. And, uh, you know, the world, the universe that he created is, is so incredible and so complex. Therefore, there's kind of that way to approach it. But by doing that, it's again 
trying to understand God the way he is and using all the complexity to try to understand that. And that is an exercise in futility. Because imagine you have two ants, two little ants on the floor, and both of them want to discuss the existence of humanity. Let's say, for example, let's say. And their brain is so small that for them to listen to a podcast, it's just not, it's not feasible. And therefore, if they were to have a discussion, well, does the podcast exist or not? It's ridiculous for them to even discuss it because their brains are so small and therefore it's, it, it's, it's beyond them. And therefore, if they don't understand it, they'll say, well, I don't understand it. It must not exist. Instead, if they want to talk about the existence of man, they just say, hey, see those huge footfalls that are about to crush us to death? Man exists and he's about to crush you, right? It's kind of a simple way to approach it versus a complex way to do it. The gulf between the ant's brain and our brain is a trillionth of the distance between our brain and God. So for us to try to understand it in a way that it makes we, – we're able to send everything. Complete complexity. The whole vast subject, it's ridiculous. It's, it's, it's silly. You know, I, I read recently that they, uh, they pointed the Hubble telescope at a empty patch of, of darkness for a hundred hours. And they found, you know, three, you know, th- uh, 10,000 new galaxies with septillions of stars. Like, all that, like, all that's all by God. It's no big deal. Like we say in the prayer that the Almighty knows all the names of all the stars, all the billions and trillions and all that. And I would say also the names of all the cells in your body. Our capacity is so limited that to try to understand it all in a complex way will invariably, the the more complexity we add to it, will invariably decrease our likelihood of understanding it. Whereas if we just ask a simple question, did the universe create itself? It's a very simple question. And of course, the answer, that's not feasible. Or we could ask a simple question like the Talmud suggests. The Talmud says that if you take one fruit fly, one mosquito, the most unimpressive of the creatures, says the Talmud, if you take all of human ingenuity from all of human history, Billions of minds all concentrating on one problem to create from scratch, to create from the matter of a fruit fly to create one fly. That's it. Not the fact that there's billions of them in Houston. Just one. Just one. That's it. It says it's almost not possible. It's not possible. So we have trillions of species on our planet. And all of human intellect can create even one. It's so complex. Not even one. They, like in every cell in your body, there's three billion protein bases in your DNA. Every single cell and you have billions and billions and billions of them. You can't create even one protein on your own. You can't. And there's such incredible, incredible, incredible creations that the Almighty created. And people believe that it happened on its own. It's, it's, it's so patently ridiculous. You don't need, you don't need complexity. Simple, simpleness. If all of human intellect could not create a single fruit fly, much less any, any more sophisticated animal, how can we possibly fathom it happened on its own? It's, it's just a simple question and there's no answers and it's checkmate. That's it. The discussion's over. 
And I think that's only that's one approach to uh, to achieve or to arrive at faith. There's maybe other ones, but I think that that's an idea that we could that we could stress. The Talmud even talks about this. The Talmud says, Rabbi Kiva says to the guy, he's like, "Well, your shirt did it? Uh, how did you make your shirt? If you have a comp, a sweater, you have a cardigan. It's made by a made by some intelligence. Why? Because it's intelligent. It's got holes for." Your sleeves, it's, it has a zipper. No one would believe that this created itself or this was created by accident. So why would people believe that something which is trillions of times more complex created itself? It's so ridiculous. It's so simple. And I think the argument is, is, is settled. And of course, we could talk about this for a long time. There's lots and lots of ways to express the same idea. Mm-hmm. For example, the fact that our Earth is in what's called the Goldilocks zone. It's like 93 million miles away from the sun. A little bit close, a little bit further. We're either covered in desert or covered in ice. Like, wow, everything's perfectly suited for life to flourish. And again, a trillion species exist on this planet. Not a single one of them could be created by humans who have tremendous intellect. Not one. Yet, it's possible for someone to even suggest that it could have created itself or it could have been created by some accident. I think it's a very simple, simple argument. And the argument that was brought in antiquity, a similar kind of idea, that uh, if you take a bottle of ink and you throw it up in the air on a big uh, sheet of paper, no one would think that a perfect replica of the Webster, Merriam-Webster's collegiate dictionary would result from the droplets of ink. Of course, that would be insane. So if you see the dictionary, you know that it was done by some intellect. You see something vastly, infinitely more complex, we can create dictionaries. We cannot create the fruit fly. Why, pray tell, would someone of reasonable sound character come to a different conclusion than the conclusion it was created by some intelligence far greater than ours. So again, that's the uh, another suggestion. I'm not saying that that's the only way to, uh, to approach faith. My grandfather, in fact, said that everyone should find their own way to do it. But this mitzvah of the first of the Ten Commandments is a mitzvah to help us believe, but also to reinforce our existing belief in the fact that the world has a creator that's all-powerful and is involved in our lives.